0: Our Father, as we come to your word, we're reminded that apart from your revelation, we're in the darkness, and apart from your word, we have no life. We're reminded that your word is a source of life, and we're reminded, Lord, that you do your work through your word. And only you, Lord, can deal with the heart of man. Only you can open the eyes of the spiritually blind. Only you can give us understanding and insight. And so we pray, Lord, that as we study your word today, that your Holy Spirit would be doing your work in us, that we may grow and that we may find joy, our greatest joy, in what Christ has done for us. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, uh, I invite you to turn to the Book of John, the Gospel according to John. We're going to be looking at chapter one, verses three to five. I almost cut it down to just verses three and four because these verses are, uh, they continue to be just incredibly rich. The prologue, the, the introduction that John has written here is so theologically rich, so much Christology, so much understanding about who Christ is and what Christ has done. You know, God created humanity to be curious to to learn and to grow in our knowledge and our understanding of the world around us. And this curiosity uh, has given rise to things like written communication, uh, but also to things like art and science. But it's also been the reason that so many false religions have existed around the world ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden. Since the fall, humanity has, uh, has consistently attributed various things, various effects, or various phenomenon to different gods or different idols or deities. And when you compare the world religions that are not based on the Word of God, that is the Bible, uh, as their foundation, when you compare those religions with the one religion that is based on the Bible alone, and that is Christianity, what we see is that without God's self-disclosure, His, his self-revelation, humanity is in the dark when it comes to knowing and understanding God, there was a time in the midst of job uh, job's suffering when his friends were, were probing him and asking him questions and questioning why God would allow him to undergo such incredible loss and such incredible suffering. And at one point, Job says this of God he says in job twenty six14Behold, these are the fringes of his ways." And how faint a word we hear of him, but his mighty thunder, who can understand? The idea being, we can't possibly hope to understand all the ways of God. But the question that he asks, but his mighty thunder, who can understand? That's obviously a rhetorical question. It's a question that answers itself. It's self-evident. But of course, the answer is that nobody can understand God. What we understand about God, therefore, must be revealed by God himself. And even then, we can only get a small, small understanding of the fullness of who he is. We we can't ever understand him fully because we're finite and he is infinite. Uh, So by by nature, we can't fully understand him. But think of the words that Paul used at the end of uh, Romans chapter 11, where he writes this. I love these, these words. Verses 33 and 34. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Again, rhetorical question. And the answer is nobody. Nobody. If God did not reveal himself, man would forever exist in ignorance of who God is, in ignorance of what God is like, in ignorance of what pleases God or what displeases God. Now, we saw in the opening verses of John last week that Jesus Christ is the Word. Uh, We see that in verse 14. He ties it all together in verse 14. But Jesus Christ is fully God, and as such, He is the full expression, the full revelation of God. That is, God reveals Himself most fully through His Word. Now, John will often use words that have multiple meanings, uh, one, one prime example is the word "world uh, John three sixteen for God so loved the world. Well, the word "world" in John has ten different meanings, so you have to be very careful with his words, but he 's also written in such a way that they all tie together and, and have uh, just a depth um, that that, we, that is very difficult to get to the bottom of, if not impossible. Uh, but that's why I say that John's letter is shallow enough for a child to, to wade in, but it's deep enough for the most seasoned theologians to drown in. But we've seen that the purpose of John's letter is to persuade us. It's to convince us to do something, and that something is to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and to thereby find life in Him. And the foundation of that faith starts with, what John has already revealed about Jesus. The foundation of that faith in Christ starts with an understanding that Jesus Christ is fully God. He's not just almost God. He's not almost there. He's not lacking in any capacity. He's not a little bit less than fully God. He is fully God and the full expression of God. As Paul would say, in him all the fullness of the deity dwells not most of it, all of it, all of it. So let me be very, very clear about why all of this is so important. Understanding that Jesus is fully God is so important because if you do not understand that Jesus is fully God, then what we're going to see about him, about Jesus in the verses that follow will make absolutely zero sense to you. The title I've given our message today is, This is Jesus, the Source of Life and Light. And here's what it comes down to. If Jesus was not fully and eternally God, we could not say this about him. We couldn't refer to him as the source of light and life. The point of this passage is that because Jesus is the source of life and light, salvation and understanding about God are found in him. So having told us that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, he was in the beginning with God, John, John now continues his introduction, his, his prologue, uh, to tell us who Jesus is by writing in verses 3 and 4. Let's look at verses 3 and 4 together. He says, all things, not most things, not almost all things, not everything except Jesus, all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now we already saw that the word that that, that John uses to refer to Jesus at this point is the word, or in the Greek, the word is logos. If you think of, uh, of a logo, what does a logo do? It represents a company, right? So that's where we get the word logo, from the word logos. It's a representation, a full representation. And that's the word that John uses to refer to Jesus. He is the logos, the word. And we saw how that connected to Genesis 1 last week. Um, Remember in Genesis 1, God spoke, and what happened? He created by the power of his word. There's that double meaning. And now John draws that out. He lets us know that it was specifically Jesus who created everything. Everything that has a beginning, everything that has come into existence, Jesus is the one who created it. Which means, by the way, that Jesus himself never came into being. He is eternal. So, who created God? Who created Jesus? Nobody. He is the eternal one. He is the uncreated creator. But here's something that we need to consider because one of the things I told you guys last week is that this book was written primarily for who? For the Greeks was written primarily for Greeks who didn't know a whole lot about Jewish culture or Jewish traditions or anything like that. It was recorded primarily for a Greek audience. So how could they know what this word logos, word, was referring to? What significance did that word, logos, word, have to the Greek mind? Well, about 600 years B.C., There was a philosopher in the region of Ephesus by the name of Heraclitus, and he famously noted that you can never step into the same river twice. That is, it's different every time you step into it. If you, for example, if you were to go down today to the Columbia River and get into it, and you were to, to get out and then get back in, it would be a different river. You'd be surrounded by different molecules. In fact, the, the topography of the river might even be slightly different uh, as there's a, a slow, slow process of erosion going on. So Heraclitus was famous for saying that you'd never step into the same river twice. But his point was this, his point was that everything in the world and in all of life was constantly in a state of change. And so the philosophers, which followed after Heraclitus, his, his fan club basically, uh, they began noticing that, that it was true, that all of life was, was in flux, it, it was constantly in a state of change. Uh, even Plato quoted Heraclitus as saying, everything changes and nothing stands still. But this forced the philosophers of Heraclitus' time to ask a very important question, and that's this. If everything is in a constant state of change, how is it that everything is so orderly? How is it that everything doesn't just go all kinds of different directions and go off into chaos? And Heraclitus responded that the reason that, uh, that life and existence, and and nature don't spin off into chaos is because the change that occurs is an ordered change rather than a random change. And that orderly change, according to Heraclitus, was controlled by a divine principle or reason or logos, word. That's what prevented everything from going into complete chaos, according to the Greeks. So for Heraclitus, who believed in some form of a deity, but not the, tr- uh, the one true living God as far as we know, the Logos was, at the very least, no- nothing less than the mind of God. It was the thing that held all things together. He's quoted as having said this. He said, this principle, that is, this Logos, bound opposites together in a unified tension, Which is like that of a lyre, where a stable, harmonious sound emerges from the tension of the opposing forces that arise from the bow bound together by the string. It was the Logos that held everything together. And so when John wrote his testimony, It had been well over 600 years since the days of Heraclitus, but because his thoughts, because Heraclitus' thoughts had been so well preserved and and even built upon by the great Greek philosophers such as Plato and, and Aristotle, his ideas not only survived, but they remained highly, highly Influential in Greek thought. Plato is is, uh, said to have once told his followers this, quote, It may be that someday there will come forth from God a word, a logos, who will reveal all mysteries and make everything plain. End quote. So it was really a brilliant Divinely inspired move on John's part to give Jesus the title, the Logos. The Word. Because it resonated both with the Jews who understood the relation to Genesis 1 and it resonated with the Greeks who understood that the Logos is what holds everything together. It was essentially a way of telling the Jews that Jesus was the source of physical life and material existence from back in Genesis chapter 1. And it told the Greeks that Jesus was the fullness of the power of God in the flesh. And so John introduces us here to two uh, primary themes that will resonate throughout the rest of his testimony. The first one is life. Life. That's what, remember, John wants us to have. He wants us to believe in Jesus so that we will find life in him. And he uses this word life no less than 32 times throughout this testimony. He uses it another 10 times in 1 John, and then he uses it 17 times in the book of Revelation. And so we read John quoting Jesus in John 3.15 that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Or in, in verse 36, he who does not obey the Son will not see life. Or whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. That's in chapter 4, verse 14. Or truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. That's from 524. And then 14.6, of course, this is the famous one. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But what does it even mean, really, in in, in the fullness of its definition? What does it mean for Jesus to be the source of life? Well, I think it's pretty plain to see that he's the source of life in two different ways. Uh, In verse 3, we see that he is the source of physical life. Verse 3 shows us that Jesus is the source of physical life. He created everything that has come into being, and nothing that has come into being did so apart from him. Why does anything exist? That's a question for the ages. That's a question that you put in a, in, a, in a philosopher's lap. Why does anything exist? And the answer is because Jesus created it. Why does anything have life? Why does anything grow? Why does anything flourish? Because Jesus gave life to it. Jesus gave life to it. Why, why doesn't everything descend into chaos? It's the Greek question. It's because Jesus sustains all of creation. Every second, every nanosecond, Jesus is holding it together by the power of his word. Think, think of the weakness of our own greatest attempts to play God. I mean, science can't manufacture a single grain of sand or a blade of grass without using what already exists. And science knows that the universe has not always existed. Science knows that the universe has not existed eternally. It affirms what the Bible has always said, what the Bible has said all along. It affirms that there has to have been a beginning, there has to be a time when everything came into existence because the universe has only a limited amount of energy. Now they didn't have to spend millions of dollars and how many years trying to get to this answer. They could have just found the answer in the Bible, but science affirms what the Bible has affirmed all along. So how did everything come into existence? The Bible tells us that it is by the power of God's word. Jesus created all things that have come into being. But man, that is so unscientific of us, isn't it? I mean, maybe it depends on on who you ask, but listen, if you're looking for a natural explanation for what is a supernatural event, I mean, you're always going to be wanting you're always going to come up short because you can't have a natural explanation for something that's supernatural. You have to defy reason. You have to defy logic and and science for that matter, which is exactly what science does as they continue looking for a natural explanation for a supernatural event. But that's exactly what they're doing when they attribute the existence of anything to time plus chance. You all heard that? I mean, that's that's what they say. That's that's why we're here, time plus chance. But listen, if it was a matter of chance, this is a little bit philosophical, so try, try to follow me here, but if it was just a matter of time and chance, the potential for this moment has existed for eternity, and thus it would have already happened unless you're saying that it took more than eternity for this moment to come, in which case, if it takes more than eternity, it never would have come. Chew on that later. (laughs) I I, I understand that that uh, that's one of those things that will make your mind start spinning. But the fact is that logic renders this argument impossible. That this is all just a result of time plus chance. So why did it happen? How was anything created? Why are we physically here in this moment, in this place today? Because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. Why is there intelligence in life? Because of Jesus. I mean, how long does it take for a rock to grow smart? How long does it take for a rock or or, or a chemical to become self-aware? To have a conscience? I mean, these are absurd questions. And we all understand that these are absurd questions because we realize we realize that material, that is chemicals and and rocks and and matter, will never, ever gain a self-awareness. As advanced as human technology has become, we can't use science to explain how anything came into existence from nothing. And we certainly can't cause something to come into existence from nothing. We can't even produce a grain of sand from nothing as advanced as our science is. The word logos for the Greek can also mean purpose or meaning. And here's what John wants us to know. He wants us to know that without Jesus, nothing has purpose. Nothing has meaning. Try, try to ask an atheist what makes anything objectively meaningful. Meaningful. Try to ask an atheist, what makes something objectively moral or immoral? And here's the truth, they can't. They can't find an objective basis for why something would be right or wrong without borrowing from our worldview. So what gives physical life purpose? Jesus does. That's why abortion is so despicable. It's because the life in the womb has meaning that God has ordained. The child bears the image of God even in the womb and to murder that baby is actually not just to murder a baby, it's also to assault the image of God and to destroy the purpose that God had for that child. This is also why collecting all the stuff in the world will not make you content. You can have riches you can have material possessions you can have anything that you see on tv you could have it all and it won't make you content that's because we we try to infuse our lives with meaning apart from jesus and so we try to collect stuff or build an identity based on something other than who we belong to who ransomed us And what we find is that ultimately, it doesn't satisfy. It it fails to make us content. Maybe we'll have a moment of joy at the beginning, but eventually we want more. It doesn't make us content. What man does by nature, the Bible tells us is to suppress the truth about God in unrighteousness and to worship the creation rather than the creator when only the creator, only the Lord Jesus Christ is worthy of our praise and our devotion and our faith. And not only is only he worthy, but only he can satisfy. And so Jesus is the Logos the word, the reason that anything has come into existence physically. He's the source of all material, physical life. God's word caused everything that has come into being to come into being, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. But just as Jesus is sovereign over the gift of physical life, so too Jesus is also the Sovereign author of spiritual life. Let me say that again. Just as Jesus is sovereign over the gift of physical life, so too Jesus is the sovereign author over spiritual life. And this is really the life that John is concerned with. In his testimony, it's, it's not uncommon, like I said, for John to use words that have more than one meaning. Word has more than one meaning. Life also has more than one meaning. And so do light and darkness. We'll get to those today. But in this way, John shows us how the physical illustrates the spiritual. This is how John tells us that Jesus is the author not only of physical life, but he is also the sovereign author of, Of spiritual life. And I don't know if there's any clearer demonstration of that in Scripture than the time when the two disciples after Jesus's death and resurrection, uh, but they haven't heard about, there are these two disciples who haven't heard yet about the resurrection. And so they're going on the road to Emmaus and Jesus comes and joins them. And it says that they were prevented from recognizing him. And so he walks with them, and they tell him everything that's happened, right? You know, that the, the Christ uh, has died, and, and you know now we have no hope. What are we going to do? And, and he kind of says to them, you know, oh, ye of little faith. He has one of those moments with them. And he starts explaining the Scriptures to them. And then we read, then their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. Their eyes were opened. It, it, it's not something that they did. They were passive in this sense, it's something that Jesus did. It's a picture of Jesus being the sovereign author of spiritual life. Just as Jesus is sovereign over physical life, <clears throat> life so too John wants us to understand that he is sovereign over spiritual life. John commonly refers to it as eternal life, and he quotes Jesus as a means of defining what eternal life is in the 17th chapter when Jesus is praying to the Father, and he says this. He says in in chapter 17, verse 3, this is eternal life. So he's defining. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's eternal life. The life that is found in Jesus is eternal. It is everlasting. Once it begins, it continues in a trajectory that goes forever, without end. And and this is our hope, right? This is our hope, both in in physical life and in physical death, that there's a life within us that death cannot overcome, that death cannot extinguish, that death can't even touch, but that will live on beyond our physical life. And that life is Christ in us, our promise, our hope, our assurance of glory. Now, when we talk about eternal life, it kind of amazes me that anyone would try to argue that eternal life can end. That is, that it can be lost that makes absolutely no sense. That, that's that, that's a, an, what you would call an oxymoron. If I can lose something, or if something can end, it's not eternal. No, salvation is by a Trinitarian God. It is ordained by the Father, it is accomplished by the Son, and it is applied by the Holy Spirit. And this salvation is a salvation that goes forever. It's a life that, that goes forever. And it includes the imparting of spiritual life, whereby God removes the heart of stone and he replaces it with a heart of flesh. The spiritual life that God imparts to his children is the same life that's going to exist in his presence a hundred years from now when every single one of our bodies is returned to dust. The spiritual life that God imparts to his children is the same life that's going to exist in his presence a thousand years from now or 10,000 years from now or 10 million years from now. It's the same life. It's a life that never ends. It is eternal in the most literal sense of the word. We have to understand one more thing about this life, this eternal life life the spiritual life that god has given us by his grace and apart from human merit and that is that the life that he has imparted to us this this eternal life that he has given us is meant to be abundant jesus will say in john chapter 10 verse 10 the thief comes only to kill and uh, steal and kill and destroy i ca- i come i came that they might have life and have it abundantly when he preached on this passage, John Calvin said this of the Christian life. He said that it is, quote, "...continually increased and strengthened in those who do not revolt from him. And indeed, the greater progress that any man makes in faith, the more nearly does he approach to fullness of life, because the Spirit who is life grows in him." End quote. Today we sang the 23rd Psalm. The 23rd Psalm is really about Jesus. It's about the good shepherd. And it starts off with these words in the NASB. It says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. And this is a picture of the type of life that John's talking about. This is the the abundant life that Jesus came to give. I shall not want. Why not? Because I'm so satisfied with what God, my shepherd, has provided for me. But the second verse is also very interesting. It, it, it parallels the first one, believe it or not, because a sheep will not eat or drink when it's laying down. If, if a sheep is, is laying down, even in the, the most lush pastures, it will not consume a single blade of grass even though that's what sheep naturally do. If they're in a field that's filled with grass, they'll just eat and eat and eat. If, and if it's hungry, it's not going to lay down. It's going it's to stand up. It's going to eat. But the sheep in Psalm 23 is so content with what the shepherd has provided that he doesn't want for anything. He doesn't need for anything more. And so he lays in this field where he's surrounded by things that he... Could have, but he doesn't need them. He doesn't want them. He's perfectly content already. His life is abundant because of what his shepherd has provided. And this is what eternal life is supposed to look like. This is the abundant life. It's filled with joy. And our capacity for having joy in Christ grows through the Christian journey. We grow in joy. We grow in satisfaction with the shepherd and in contentment with what the shepherd has provided for us. Now, before we move past the idea that Jesus is the sovereign author, both of physical life and of spiritual life or eternal life, we have to make sure... That we aren't thinking of eternal life only in terms of length or duration. See, it isn't just quantity, it's also quality. It refers to time as much as it refers to type. It's marked by growth as all of life is. Specifically, growth in things like obedience and righteousness and holiness and the person who is not growing in obedience and holiness, therefore, ultimately can really make no claim to have eternal life. Because that's supposed to be the fruit of eternal life. And until they start producing that good fruit, they can't make that claim. See, the opposite of eternal life isn't just eternal death, but eternal death unto eternal condemnation. To receive eternal life is to be rescued from this condemnation, from the wrath of God. To receive eternal life is to be given not only a, a new direction in life, but also new desires, new ambitions, new affections, things that we, that we pursue, things that we love, things that we enjoy, new values. It's not that eternal life deprives us of joy. People will say that. People will say, you know, I don't want to become a Christian because... I like all this other stuff so much. And we would say, that's exactly the problem. That's exactly the problem. But, but see, the, the only way for that to change is not behavior modification. The only way for that to change is Jesus. It's not that eternal life is a killjoy. It's a change of what we find joy in. Eternal life results in us finding a greater capacity for joy in the right things. Whereas in our natural state, we enjoy sinful things. We enjoy evil things. And the first thing that we must find joy and contentment in is God himself as revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's a work that only Jesus can accomplish in a heart but contrast this this growing capacity for finding joy with the existence of the fool. Psalm 14.1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. One commentator notes this of, of Charles Darwin, for example, an example of somebody who denies God. He said, quote, he turned his back on God and committed himself to secular humanism. His biography reveals that in doing so, he lost his taste for life. As Darwin grew older, he admitted that he could no longer get anything out of poetry, music, or art. Life lost its flavor, and he lived out his days in a world without wonder or joy. End quote. So we have to understand that without Christ... The joys of life, the things that we find happiness in, are at best contingent upon favorable and fleeting circumstances, if not based upon sinful desires. And those circumstances are not only likely to change, they are guaranteed to change. So if you want happiness in life, if you want joy in life, why would you seek joy and happiness in things that cannot give you lasting joy or happiness. I mean, that's kind of like building a house on sinking sand, isn't it? Why would somebody build their house on sinking sand, proverbially proverbially speaking? It's because they hate and they curse and they rebel against the very God who has given them life and who by His grace alone continues to bless them with the gift of physical life. Now we have to see the connection before we continue between these two concepts that John has introduced us to, and that is the word and life. We need to see the, con- the, the connection between these two things. Jesus is the word, in him was life, right? So thus, follow me on this because this is really important to our understanding of the text. Thus, it is through God's word that spiritual life is found, that spiritual life, eternal life, comes to us. That's why we preach the Bible. Because the Bible is also the Word. Think about all the ridiculous things that churches use these days to draw people in. Entertainment, worldliness, Professional wrestlers, yeah, there was really a church in Texas that did that last month. They brought in The Undertaker and some professional wrestlers. And when you see that life is only found in the Word, you realize how utterly sinful it is to try to draw people to entertainment or to a pep talk that makes them feel good about themselves but doesn't convict them of sin. We preach the Word because God, in His wisdom and in His sovereign ability to do so, has ordained that life, that spiritual life, comes by hearing the preaching of the Word. Romans 10. So do you want this life that is only found in Christ Jesus? You must come to His Word. Do you see how John is using these words with multiple meanings to draw us to this conclusion? If you want eternal life, if you want this abundant life that Jesus talks about, it's found in God's Word. That's why you need to come to church regularly. That's why I preach the Bible. And and not just the latest topics, the latest ideas. You know, I, I don't give you guys a, a, you know, a Joel Osteen-like pep talk to make you feel good about yourself, necessarily. What feels good is when God turns us away from our sinful desires through the preaching of His Word and turns us toward holy desires where we find eternal life and joy in Christ. See, I don't have the right to come up here and just feed you whatever... My opinions are, I don't have the right to feed you anything but God's Word. Because that's where spiritual life, spiritual sustenance, and spiritual nourishment is found. And the person who does not come to the Word will famish. They can't be healthy. That's why it's important also for you to spend time reading your Bible. Because that's where life is found. God in his sovereign and unsearchable wisdom has ordained that spiritual life would only be found in his word. So you need to be grazing on it regularly, right? You're going to be malnourished without it. Think about the the wise man in Psalm 1. We're going to be looking at Psalm 1 next week as we start a new series in the Psalms on the first Sunday of every month. The blessed man is contrasted with the wicked, but what is it that the blessed man delights in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. John says of the word, in him was life and the life was the light of men. So let's continue looking at verse five where he kind of connects these two thoughts, life and light. John chapter one, verse five, he says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. So once again, these are, these are major themes in John's book, light and darkness. And once again, we see that these are words with both a physical meaning and with a spiritual meaning. We'll see, for example, that John often tells us, of uh, when he tells us things that are happening, he'll point out that this was during the day or that this was during the night. For example, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus took place at night in the darkness. That's where Nicodemus was. He was in the darkness. Why does John tell us that it took, uh, took place at night? Because darkness is the opposite of light, Sp- uh, spiritually and physically. Light's a concept that just resonates with us. It makes sense to all of humanity on a universal level, doesn't it? Because there isn't a civilization in all of human history that's ever existed entirely in darkness. Nor could they, even if they wanted to. There was a study that was conducted in 2015 that found that living in darkness will actually drive human beings to the brink of insanity. There were two people who agreed to dwell in some caves separate from one another. And one of them would would do something really weird he would sleep for 30 hours at a time and when he woke up he felt like he'd only taken a short nap and so the study concludes when it comes quote when it comes down to it our body's natural cycle and circadian rhythm rely on natural light and without it our physiology goes wonky So John uses this concept, he uses the concept of light in reference to Christ, knowing that it communicates just a a vast number of things about Jesus and what Jesus came to do. Think about what light does in a physical sense. It reveals things. Let's say you come home late one night, and somebody's broken into your house while you've been gone, but you come home late at night, and how do you even know that there's been a break-in? you turn on the lights and you realize that everything is out of place it reveals what has happened it gives you knowledge of what has happened and this is what Isaiah says of the coming of Christ he said in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2 the people who walk in darkness will see a great light those who live in a dark land the light will shine on them he's not talking about iceland or alaska he's talking about people who live in spiritual darkness not knowing god not understanding god living in a state of superstition or in hopes that their best works will please whatever deity might be looking on at any given moment and so john tells us that jesus who is light came to reveal but what does he reveal The Word is light, and the light reveals God to us, but the light also reveals our condition. It reveals our sin. The light reveals how short we have fallen. The light reveals our condition of being spiritually lost by nature. The light reveals our desperate need, therefore, for mercy and grace. James Montgomery Boyce tells a story about a game that he used to play when he was a young boy and went camping. In the darkness of night, he and some of his friends would play this game to figure out who had the brightest flashlight. But he noted that this was obviously a game that would have to eventually end because the sun would come up, and as soon as the sun came up, you couldn't even see, you couldn't even notice the differences in brightness between the flashlights. And then he notes this. He says, quote, that is the experience people have when they come face-to-face face with Jesus Christ. So long as we live in the darkness of this world, you and I are able to compare the relative merits of human goodness or righteousness, but all these distinctions fade away in the presence of the white light of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. His coming reveals the profundity of the darkness. End quote. So in a physical sense, light reveals And Jesus, in a spiritual sense, reveals. But without light, we also lose our sense of direction. So in that sense, light also guides. It guides physically, and the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, and also the Scriptures, guide spiritually. Think of the, the words of the longest psalm of all, Psalm 119. In verse 105, the psalmist says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Light also stimulates growth. If you have a plant that you absolutely hate, the way to kill it in the most painful way possible, I would imagine, is to put it in a closet or put it in your crawl space, put it in some place where it can't possibly get light. But contrast that with the fact that if you have a, a plant in the darkness and there's just a, sh- just a, a shimmering of light, just a, a sliver of light for it to grow toward, it will. Because light stimulates growth. Even with the best soil and the right amount of water, a plant in complete darkness is guaranteed to die without light. It cannot live in the darkness. And this is also the human condition, isn't it? The Word of God reveals the truth about God and about humanity and and man's natural inclination to curse the very God who has created and sustained him. Man's natural inclination is to hate the light. You see, if, if light represents knowledge and understanding of God, then darkness is an illustration of the spiritual ignorance, sometimes willful, definitely willful that the world so loves and prefers over the light. Christ came as a light, and the world, the the dark, ignorant, evil world, hates the light. Jesus would say, everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. He doesn't say that almost everyone will hate the light. He says, everyone who does evil hates the light. Who does evil? Every single one of us every single one of us. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. This is why it's something that Jesus must be sovereign over. But the question is, what is your response to the light? You can hate it as the the word reveals that humanity is naturally inclined to do. You can try to pretend that it doesn't exist, which is what... So many do, uh, and, and, but that's what John means when he says that the, that the darkness did not comprehend or understand or overcome. Uh, that's another way of translating it that you'll find in, in some translations. It did not comprehend the light. So you can hate the light or you can come to the light. You can live in the light. You can walk in the light. You can cry out, O oh Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. For your word has revealed that my deeds are evil, that my best deeds are like filthy rags to you. Your word has revealed that there is nothing that I can do on my own to please you, and that I have no hope of righteousness on my own. And your word reveals that my only hope is to find life by believing in your only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is fully God, fully man, begotten, not made, eternal, fully God and fully man, light of light, who lived a sinless life and died a sinner's death as a substitute for anyone who will repent and believe in him. Your word reveals that he will take my sin and remove it from me, replacing it with his own righteousness, and that the crimson stain of my own sin would be washed white as snow in order that I may stand before you, not in my merit, not because I'm good, but because Christ did it in my place. He was able to fulfill the demands of the law as my substitute. And God's word reveals that if you'll believe that, God will be faithful to what he's promised. And not only that, but then he'll send you back into the world with a purpose, with meaning to your life, to be a light in the darkness. And friends, that is what he both calls us and equips us to do with his word. People won't find Christ in TV shows. They won't find Christ in their magazines or in their schools. No, those are all places where they will be drawn away from Christ. They'll only see him as you reflect him in their presence. But that has to start with you believing in Christ and finding eternal life, nourishment, and light in God's word. The Greek philosophers thought the world was constantly changing and I suppose in one sense they were correct but there's one thing that never changes and that is that Jesus is Lord he died in the place of sinners he was raised on the third day to prove it Jesus is Lord and he's the source of life and light and that will never change and so I urge you to examine your lives and to build every aspect of your life on this unchanging truth, on the foundation of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, to believe in him and to find life and light in him. Our great Father, we thank You for Your Word, both for the Scriptures which reveal Your will, Your ways, what pleases You, what displeases You, but also for Your Word, our Lord, Christ Jesus. And we acknowledge before You in the silence of our hearts, Father, that Your Word reveals how wicked, and how evil we are. And so we confess our sins to you in the silence of our hearts. And we ask that the blood of Christ shed for us would wash us clean. We ask for the remission of sins, not because we deserve it, but for the sake and on the merit of Christ alone. Thank you for sending light into the darkness. Thank you for opening the eyes of our hearts that we may see the light and walk in the light. Thank you for making us new creations with new ambitions and new desires and new affections who are learning to love the right things, to find joy in the right things, starting with your Son the Lord Jesus Christ. Forgive us for seeking contentment in anything else. But thank you, Lord, for sending your Son, for sending Jesus to ransom and redeem us, that we may go forth as light in the darkness. And it's only by your grace, it's only by the Holy Spirit working in us and effecting change within us that we can reflect you in the dark world. So give us grace to do that, Father, that we may glorify Christ in all that we do. In his name we pray.